the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I want to ask you a personal question first, because I am asked this all the time. Among other things, I do a happiness hour every week, and I do have a happy disposition. So I'm asked all the time, how does this affect me personally? The, the this meaning the situation in America, the suppression of free speech, as an example, the corruption of the media, which we're going to get to in a moment. I am curious, how do you personally deal with it? Well, I kind of ignore it and then I bump into it, you know. So if I'm, I'm at Stanford University, which is, I mention that only because it's so far left. And I've been brought up by the faculty senate for columns I write or I get professors that call Hoover and, and complain or except. So I'm used to that. And I, I think all of us just sort of go ahead and feel that this is sort of the dark ages as far as free expression, that the left that used to brag about anything goes and free speech areas is now it's Orwellian, it's totalitarian, it doesn't believe in free speech. That's a big change. I think the biggest thing that's that, that I look at is as a kid that went to school here in California in college, the 60s people, 70 people that I looked at, they were on the street, Dennis. They were marching against the Pentagon. They were barging in uncouth into the president's office. They were throwing eggs at the corporate uh, logo. They were picketing the draft centers, but now they're inside. They run it. They're the dean. They're the secretary of defense. They're the head of the joint chiefs. They're Disney CEOs. They're, and that's the biggest shock, I think, is how easily they adapted themselves. The, the techniques that they use on the street in the 60s, they've adapted to use when they have power and money and influence as the, the establishment. You mentioned you're being at Stanford, and you're you're at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Is that correct? Yes. Right. So, do you get to teach at Stanford to Stanford students, or, or are you at what I think of as a think tank? Well, we're a little different because a senior fellow uh, is a tenured is tenured and that tenure is not given by Hoover, it's given by Stanford. So you have to go through the tenure process through the department in which you would be a member would you, if you were at the university itself. So I was tenured by the classics department, but I have no desire to teach there and I don't think they have any desire to welcome me. So what I got around that is that I have in my contract when I came to Hoover 21 years ago that I can take a month in September and go to Hillsdale College and teach an intensive course there. And I've done that for 21 years. Talking about the classics? Uh, maybe. Uh, I, t- 
No, yeah, no, forgive I me. Think... I just want to ask you about. Yeah. I want. I want. Yeah. To, I want to get your reaction okay. to something. I say talking about the classics, comma. I just w- read to my listeners. Maybe my producer will remember where. Where is it that you can now get a degree in classics, but never Princeton. Oh, Princeton. Okay, yeah, the Joshua Katz article. That's right. Yes. 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 So I'd like you to discuss the state of classics education in uh, the universities of America. Well, I would say that starting 30 years ago in round one of the culture wars, it was Michel Foucault and Lacan and Derrida that had displaced philology and rigorous training. So if you were a student, when I went to Stanford's PhD program, you had to know Latin and Greek, and you were tested in a three-hour exam in the PhD level. You had to be able to write in Latin and Greek, and that would be tested. You had a three-hour exam in Greek history, wow, Roman wow. history, Roman lit, <laughs> oh, uh, Greek lit, and then you had to defend your thesis, and then you had to be responsible for three other topics, and then you had to have a reading knowledge of German and French as well as Latin and Greek. That I don't think exists anymore. I don't think they require a composition requirement. It's watered down and it's theory. And then you had to take 12 seminars, very rigorous seminars in philology, manuscripts, archeology, span numismatics, epigraphy. So what I'm getting at is that all of that has been considered exclusionary. And like everything else- What does that mean theory- exclusionary? That means that, quote unquote, marginalized people feel that those are arbitrary standards that we reinforce privilege. And therefore, who is to say that you need to know Greek to be an undergraduate classics major at Princeton? Or when you're writing a thesis, maybe you want to write it on the marginalization of slaves or the denigration of women, but it's going to be a contemporary woke issue that will be channeled through the ancient world. And so that's the difference. And I, before I retired, I was a Greek professor for 21 years at the Cal State system. And even when I retired in 2004 or five, it was generally known that if you ask a professor to come for a job interview, you, you, you just didn't think that they could read Latin at sight like they used to. I, I couldn't give them a page of Caesar or Cicero or a page of Euripides or Lysias and say, could you please read that to see if you're qualified? Or if you ask them basic knowledge. And that's 20 years that ago. Happened, 20 years ago. And today it's worse. So what Jonathan Katz was fighting at Princeton was the complete destruction of standards. So if you took a Princeton PhD today and you took him and he was in a job interview, and you ask him the following questions. How far is Sparta from Athens? Why did the Mycenaean world fall apart? Uh, Who built the Parthenon? They wouldn't know any of that, none. They would try to steer the conversation to, uh, I'm interested in uh, the marginalization of the helots, or I wanna know what uh, race and and gender, and I'm working on transgenderism and a cult that kind of stuff. And so they don't know Greek and Latin and they're proud of not knowing it because they feel that it's that it represents a, a white privileged tradition in Western Civ. Do they consider the Greeks and Latins white? Well, that was a big fight, you know, in this 80s where this Afrocentrism, uh, Lionel Jeffries and Martin Bernal and, and 
tried to claim that Egypt, uh, the Egyptians were African and many of the Greeks were like Socrates and there was no evidence for that. I mean, the Ptolemies in Egypt were Macedonian-Greek, but that kind of faded out. But that was the first round. That was the World War One fight. And then we had the, the peace between the, the world wars and now we're into a much more serious World War Two. I think, across the humanities. Well, I remember, and I, I, rem- I was broadcasting at the time, and I said, this is a sea change. When Jesse Jackson led a march at Stanford, hey, yes. hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. Uh, that, that was it for me. That, that, was, that was the obituary for Western Civ. Yeah, and that was when they went after Bill Bennett, they went after Alan Bloom, they... Uh, we went after Saul Bellow, but I think... Remember that. Yeah, Saul yeah, Bellow was the yeah. last thing you mentioned. So the last thing you mentioned when we had to go to break, uh, Victor, was uh, you were mentioning Saul Bellow and Alan Bloom and so on. So do you want to continue from there, or should I pose another question? Ten seconds. That was the first round where they went after traditional education, but it was, it was played... But- between the sidelines, they all agreed that there was such a thing called the humanities. They just wanted to change it. This new group, this next generation, the second war, they don't believe in the genre of classics or humanities. They want to destroy them. I think a Professor Daniel Peralta Princeton says, I want to destroy classics. And he's a classics professor. So this is a nihilist. This is sort of the Jacobin round of the French Revolution. That's right. Well, uh, my my area is music, not not uh, literature. And w- what is happening at, to orchestras around the country is, is analogous, not to mention music, which started with atonality in the beginning of the 20th century. What? Here's the $64,000 question. Well, for you, I would put it differently. What was the unit of uh, of m- money in ancient Greece? In ancient Greece. The drachma. Oh, still? Really? They still use that? Yes. Okay. So here's the the 64,000 drachma drachma question for you. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I have been preoccupied with this ever since I was at an Ivy League school for my graduate work. What animates the desire to destroy? Because that's all it is. They, They build nothing. So, do you have a theory as to this, this, the origins of nihilism? Well, I, it, it's usually a, a very educated, uh, elite, pampered class that feels that their rhetorical skills or their glibness or their savvy, savviness, whatever, however, their cunning, that's not properly rewarded by society. And so they despise the 7-Eleven owner or they despise the car. Anybody who has more things and is more successful materially. And so then they condemn the entire system that hasn't appreciated their genius. And and they adopt this this creed, which is wokeness is just simply another face of radical government or state mandated equality of result where any on any inequity, any unequalness, if I could use that word, has to be attributed to 
an oppressor or a victimizer or somebody has to be culpable if you're too short or you're too long, you got bad health, good health, good inheritance, bad inheritance, natural skill, none that, that make us not equal. They have the power they feel, this elite, to determine uh, to put some people back and to put some people forward and even it out on the back end. And, and the weird thing about it is that that process is never, it never extends to themselves. They're exempt from the ramifications of their own psychology, whether you're, you know, John Kerry on a private jet lecturing about carbon emissions worldwide or the Davos set or you're talking or about Gavin Newsom e- eating in a restaurant yes. without a mask. I thought that was we, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or, you know, you you feel that uh, Nancy Pelosi has to go to her hairdresser. That's right. Or yep. That's Elizabeth right. Warren. The Marxist, semi-Marxist Elizabeth Warren writes a book on flipping houses and how to profit. So that's who, so I, I don't think I'm not saying they're not serious and they're not ideologues, but I think the motivation that makes them want to adopt this nihilist radical equality that they'd rather have everybody equal and poor than everybody better off, but some more equal than others is some kind of personal anger or that they feel that it has something to do with our modern education or they 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 do get these degrees and they are a member of the upper classes and they feel that they did not get their proper deserving. Yeah, I, I I can't I can't agree with you more and I I always forget to note this. I'm glad you did. They don't think they get the proper respect. I know all this, and a third baseman makes 50 times more than I do. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or even, doesn't even have to be that much. They feel that, I've had people say to them, I, you know, what does a 7-Eleven person know? And I would say they know on the tip of their fingers, security, inventory, profit margin, quality of product. <laughs> It's, it's a very tough job that no academic could do, but they hate the guy with the Winnebago or the boat or the jet skis. And it, it's very strange that this left wing romance with uh, egalitarianism for everybody, but this really weird desire, obsession with nice things and status and titles. And I know at Stanford, I see all these BMWs that come in in 2020-21 with BLM stickers on them, you know. So I would like to bounce a theory of mine off you. I, I shouldn't feel it necessary to say, but I tell every guest this. Feel totally free to say I completely <laughs> I completely disagree. That's fine with me. Uh, but I would like to bounce it off you because I have... I've studied the left. You've studied classics your whole life. I've studied the left my whole life. I, I don't know if you know, I was at the Russian Institute at Columbia University where I did my graduate work in what was called communist affairs. I studied under Zbigniew Brzezinski. There were seven of us at Columbia. It was a very rare major. I'm glad I did, unfortunately, because it turned out to be very relevant, my study of communism and the left. So it's been a very tough question for me. What animates people... For example, to say men give birth, that you now have to say that at Stanford, where you are. So I have a theory, and again, just just react as, as you will. 
I believe that ultimately we have a religious crisis. And it, an, an atheist can, can agree with this. Douglas Murray is, is not a believer. I don't know if he's an atheist or an agnostic. Uh, but he, he he's signs on to the, the religious nature of the issue. And in a nutshell, in my understanding, and my listeners are familiar with this, so in the Genesis account of creation, what God does for six days is not create. He creates very rarely. It's, the term is only used three times in, in all of those days. What God does is make order out of chaos. That's why I consider the second verse, the mo- second most important verse after the first, and everything was chaos. Tohu vavohu really means chaos. I believe the left in the post-Judeo-Christian, post-Bible, post-Genesis age in which we live, in the final analysis, yearns for chaos. Men give birth is the quintessence of chaos. How do you react to that thesis? Well, they sure, I, I think that, I, I agree with it in this sense that their agenda does not appeal to human nature. So most people do not want to buy into socialism or communism. So they look for chaotic moments to push through things that are otherwise unpalatable. So whether it's a 2008 meltdown or whether it's COVID or whether it's January 6th, it's that Rahm Emanuel's never let a crisis go their way. So they, they feel that chaos for a moment, a brief moment destroys rationality and it destroys historiosity and shame and normality and protocols and rules. And within that window, they can squeeze through and establish a, a whole set of other of new realities. Once they do that, they don't want chaos. Once they have a Soviet system or a socialist system, or they take over a department or they take over a foundation, but to get in, yeah, they want chaos and they want people to have mm-hmm. no reference and be confused mm-hmm. and they can step in and otherwise, uh, you know, introduce ideas that otherwise are repellent. Most people don't want their ideas, but they're afraid and they don't want to 10% want their ideas and the other 90% feel that they'll suffer if they object because they feel they're in control. They, they squeezed through the window and took over the apparatus like some virus. And they, so what is the end? Terrified. The end is that you have to have uh, a number of people, voices who say, I don't care what they do to me. And there's, Oh, I think oh no, no, I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. What oh. is the left's end? What, what do they, if they're not aiming for chaos, they use chaos, which I can, I can, I can yeah. I can accept that. What is is it power is is it yes, utopia power and, pri- power and privilege. And because they are not religious and they don't believe in transcendence, they want to feel that in this brief time on earth their power, their genius has reordered society as if they're some kind of god. They have they have made people equal. They have solved the problems of climate change. They have you know, they're not interested in individual people, you know, solving cancer or helping poverty. They want these cosmic reorderings of society. And that's their legacy that makes them famous and immortal. 
and they have to have certain means to be able to get those in. That is very, very insightful. We'll return in a moment. That's a big deal. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. I I would like to bounce off another of my thoughts uh, with you or off you. I am asked regularly, am I optimistic or pessimistic? And I'd like to give you my answer and then get yours, or at least your reaction to my answer. I tell people I don't have any use for optimism or pessimism, because my only question is, will you fight? If optimism leads you to fight, great. If pessimism does, great. But generally, I would think neither leads you to fight. Pessimists think it'll all turn out lousy, why fight? Optimists think it'll all turn out great, why fight? What's your reaction? I tend to agree. I I think the world's divided up between the 10% that will speak out, no matter what the consequences, and the 90% that won't but want somebody to do that. And the woke people control all of the institutions, as, we've know, as we know, but they don't, I don't think they control... 51% of the people, but the people feel just like they did in Eastern Europe or under communism or national socialism, that it's not in their interest to speak out right now, that that the left has more tools that can hurt them and is willing to use them in a way the right is more laissez-faire and won't, and therefore they react accordingly, whether you're an actor or a professor or a bureaucrat or a kindergarten teacher, they understand that. and And so... They feel that they can get away with that because their message of equality and mandated fairness and tolerance is much more effective in disguising the means than individual liberty. And and so, yeah, I think that's what all that matters in these crisis moments is whether we have enough people that say, do your do your worst and I'll do my best and we'll see who wins. Yeah, well, that's back to my other thing about the, the rarity of, of courage. You're in the classics, and I, I, I'm wondering, do students n- major in the classics anymore? It, it, it's hard to imagine. And, and what when they do, is it with a sincere interest of reading Homer or, or, or Pericles? I mean, I don't, I don't quite know. Why are they doing it? Well, I, until recently, there were about... Uh, you know, 5,000 classics professors, and there was probably about 5,000 majors total in the United States of 330 million people. And they did it because they took a class in translation and loved the Iliad, or they liked the Oedipus, or they thought the Bacchae, and they got into it. And then they found out that their grammatical skills or their inductive skills or their appreciation of art were they were broadly educated they had reference they could make observations in the abstract with this new body of knowledge and then they found out for some you know it was a good background to be a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor in graduate school and a few wanted to go into to grad um graduate programs to be teachers but the problem was that that you had to make that argument to them of the not just the as you say the beauty of it and the aesthetics but the practicality because you're asking an 18 year old 19 year old to spend two or three thousand hours to learn latin and greek each 
And that's a hard sell when they're working 20 hours a week. I taught mostly a state school where everybody was working and mostly Mexican-American and Southeast Asian. So you had to come up with practical ideas. In the Ivy League or at Stanford or, you know, Berkeley, uh, then you have a little different argument. You have people that have the money and the time and the leisure. And yet they are fun. It's odd. They are the least likely to want to to study classics for the beauty of it or the development of your character or your sensitivities. It's more people that I found in the working class that find a whole new world opens up to them. And so that's, that's and the, in the Ivy this League. revolution. So why, why are they in it in the yeah. Ivy League? Why, I don't know. I oh, think okay. They, that's a, I think they, <laughs> yes. I, 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 I don't know why a professor at Princeton would say, I want to destroy classics. And I'm quoting verbatim from this Daniel Del Parata guy and others that went with him. Or I don't know why you'd want to take a guy like Joshua Katz, who I, I know, but only after his, his, uh, his tragedy. But I knew him as a scholar who wrote on Mycenaean and Homeric dialects. And why would you want to take somebody with an excellent teaching record and try to destroy him just because he commented that he thought it was a terrorist act to go into a dean's office and try to hold him hostage. That's a, a logic. And that's what uh, I think people are. In other words, Dennis, how did this supposedly wonderful aesthetic experience, this knowledge of Western civilization, how did it leave you so ill-equipped to be a member of the Say Them Witch Trial Committee and go after a fellow humanist and try to not just He wrote in his piece, him. Joshua Katz, yeah. who's, who, that yeah. not a single or maybe one, I don't remember, it was one or zero, has spoken to him of yeah. all his colleagues in the classics department at Princeton. Spoken to him. And yet he was a winner of so, the best so, so, of yes, teaching award. That's right. So, I know it's almost a bitter-sounding question. Do, do weaklings tend to enter the humanities or, or professoriate in general, or does college, oh, yes. does college make oh, yes. them a weakling? Both, but mm-hmm. they're not the muscular working classes. They're not, they don't fight nature every day. They don't go up on telephone poles and risk their lives. They don't farm. They're not in behind a tractor for 15 hours a day, bouncing up and down. They don't drive 1200 miles a day in a semi. Those are the muscular classes. They are the reflective classes, and they're much more prone to... Yeah, we saw that in Canada with the truckers. So, Victor, when I meet the people, which I do constantly because of all the speaking that I do, as you do, and I have a question that I don't hesitate asking. I'm obviously invited to almost always conservative groups. So I will ask a couple you have any children? Usually yes. How many? Whatever the number. And then I'll say, so what's your batting average in their keeping up your values? And I've asked this to at least 500 people. And roughly speaking, if about a third of their children, a third of them, all of their children have their values a third, none of their children have their values, and a third, it's split. So I, if that's been your experience as well, I'll go to the question. 
what can what can people do? And I have this suggestion, and then I want to hear yours before we have to say goodbye. Yeah. Very I su- quickly, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. If you have, a, you have well, a very I, quickly. The yeah. question is, why did they change the values that they were brought up with? And then the answer is, they got these values imported from universities or exactly. schools. Exactly. Exactly. Popular music, which leads so the me only- then to my suggestion: yeah. if you're raising children, homeschool your child, or find one of the rare schools that will actually teach them knowledge and wisdom. And if you are a grandparent, offer your children to pay what they would lose if they left the job in order to homeschool their children. Any thoughts? I think that's a really wise idea. Or if you can't do that and you're not equipped to teach your children in a way that you think a level, you could put them in a charter or a school that maybe had the Hillsdale Protocol. I've looked at their, you know, their private uh, K through 12 programs and they're excellent. And so, but yeah, if you take your child and just put them in the public school now, you should expect them not to like what you are and what you are doing because they will be, they will be told that they're, they're coming in from a toxic environment and the university or the school only has a few brief moments to deprogram them from this toxicity. Right. And they will work their hardest to do that and turn them against you. It's absolutely true. I've seen it happen, as you have, thousands Very of often, time. thousands of times. Well, my friend, it's been a wonderful hour. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for having me, Dennis. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.